Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything simply everything you can possibly think of has its own history, like bananas, trucks, and the moon. Oh, the moon is actually all about cheese, the history of cheese. <laughs> or we could do braces, maces, and faces, laces, paces, and disgraces. Mm. So people being in disgrace, it could be a history of misbehaviour, misdemeanour, being in disgrace, being on the naughty step, being in the dunce's corner. However, that is to digress monstrously, as always, because, as ever, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining, explaining extremely carefully and fully how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of rhyming is in fact all about singing games and the transmission of dance songs across the centuries to children's playgrounds. It's about Renaissance verse, Petrarchan sonnets, Thomas Wyatt, the court of Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn and World War II. It's also about nonsense and Edward Lear and the rise of professional writing. Mmm, isn't that good? That was one of our recent ones and I loved it. Um, Or that the history of hugs, and we should all be thinking about this at the moment, uh, is all about the science and psychology of hugging. It's about babies and upbringing. It's about greetings and the gendering of hugs. It's about US presidents and the politics of hugging. It's also about free hugs, tree hugging and the Kajali massacre in September 1730. Uh, Two humdingers of recent episodes, Sam. Weren't, weren't they just? You're probably wondering who is giving you all of this information. Let me just say that he is the Lapsang Chong of historians. If he could put history in a bag and steep it, he would. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam Willis. <laughs> I too struggled with an introduction today. <laughs> However, the man not sitting opposite me because we are still social distancing. We're still at it. Uh, well, let's just say that if he were a tea-related historian, he'd only be the Mr. Techley of history. So popular, blockbuster and palatable are the leaves of his historical steeped endeavour. It's the famous historical adventurer across town, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. We're doing tea. You probably worked that out. (laughs) Yes, we are doing tea. (laughs) We are doing tea. What a what a wonderful thing to do. Um, Do you like tea, Sam? I love tea. tea I'm a super tea fan. 
Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. I'm a, Maybe I'm a coffee does, fan. I spent we'll so much coffee my, next. Spent so much of my time in China. Uh, I have oh. become to to really really like tea. I used to, I don't know so much anymore, but I used to have you know a big variety of different teas. I would select from depending on my whim for the particular day it was or how am my oh. mood. Um, talking yeah. of talking of China, I came across uh, as you do a late seventeenth century. Uh, transcript about the medical benefits of tea from China, transcribed by T. Povey, a member of parliament hmm. in 1686. And get this, for all these medicinal benefits of tea, who knew? One, it purifies the blood of that which is gross and heavy. It vanquisheth heavy dreams. It easeth the brain of heavy damps. Easeth and cureth giddiness and pains in the head. Prevents the dropsy. Dryeth moist humours in the head. Consumes rawness. Opens obstructions. Clears the sight. Cleanseth and purifieth adult's humour and a hot liver. Purifieth defects of the bladder and kidneys. Vanquisheth superfluous sleep. Drives away dizziness, makes one nimble and valiant, encourageth the heart and drives away fear, drives away all pains of the colic, which proceed from wind, strengthens the inward parts and prevents consumption, strengthens memory, sharpens the will and quickens the understanding, purgeth safely the gall, strengthens the use of due benevolence. <laughs> Who would have brilliant. thought that, that, that tea could be so powerful? I love the vanquisheth superfluous sleep. My teenage yes. kids could do with some of that. <laughs> yes, I bet they could. <laughs> um, that is fantastic, actually. And one of the things I wanted to do was, at the beginning is sit down and think of all the different ways we might approach the history of tea. Um, and it struck me early on that you can... Uh, my original thoughts was, was, oh, it can be... A, you can do an imperial history of tea. It's it's how uh, East meets West. It's, it's why the British got involved in all sorts of wars all over the world. So the imperial aspect was a pretty obvious one. And then I was thinking about uh, medicinal nature because I'd done quite a lot of stuff in China on uh, a Chinese medicine, a tea which features very pr- highly in. And um, I was also thinking about... Um, the rituals of tea. I was talking to the director of the Australian National Maritime Museum the other week about about mm. Captain Cook, and um, he was telling me a story about a tea tray made in the 18th century, a japanned tea tray called Japan. It's a kind of type of enamelling Japan tea tray, which uh, uh, which was decorated with an image of the death of Captain Cook, and it's one of a of, of all sorts of uh, of uh, sort of memorials, mementos made after after Cook was uh, was was killed on the beach uh, in the Pacific. Uh, so I suddenly thought about the whole ritual to do with tea and how that has changed and how it varies from country to country. So if you drink tea in Japan, it's a completely different experience to drinking tea in China or drinking tea with my granny in Dorset, whatever it might be. I remember once going to a, a wedding in London, a Chinese wedding in London, uh, which had an extraordinarily elaborate and hierarchical tea drinking ceremony. Hmm. Um, and it basically involved the sort of senior members of the family and the the, the bride and groom, uh, and everyone else was just sort of left uh, to fend for themselves and got incredibly drunk because there was nothing else to do for like three hours <laughs> while this ceremony went on. It was quite hmm. extraordinary. But yeah, I too uh, am going to be talking a little bit about ceremony. Um, I, I think for me, I I wasn't that interested in the tea. I wasn't a- actually interested in 
in the the sort of the drink or the or the leaves or anything. I'm interested in the the culture of tea, tea drinking, tea cups, and all the sort of protocols that surround that, and in particular about. 18th century politeness. So I'm going to have a big thing on that and the material culture of the the teapot and the teaspoon and the tea table and all of those sort of things. Times for tea, all of that sort of thing. And then I want to think about the the negative impact of tea as well, you know, and tea being tea 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 drinking possibly being bad for you and seen as sort of um as sort of something that one shouldn't overindulge in. But then also you know, problems with the tea trade and with people um, adulterating tea so that they cut it down um, so that they can make more profit out of it, the theft of tea, all of that sort of stuff. Hmm. Um, and also from a gendered point of view, you know, that a lot of these routines that built up around tea drinking and tea time and, and how you dress and how you should be and, you know, are not only... They're not just... Uh, shows of wealth and status, but also in a sort of quite insidious, silent way, it is a way of of constraining women, you know, who are who are, are sort of particularly active in the rituals of tea. Hmm. Interesting. Do you get them to make tea rather than you know do important things? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, let me start with um, a bit of ancient deep history. I'm going to talk about something called Tianluoshan, which is one of China's earliest societies. It's, it's, a, it's an archaeological site, and um, it's, it's Neolithic. It's, it's thousands BC, 5,000 BC, maybe six, maybe 7,000 BC. And it's fascinating for what it tells us about the early roots of Chinese agriculture. The early roots of farming. They they found a village. It's very large. There's all sorts of wooden architectural remains. But um, crucially, it's in an area of marshland. So they found all sorts of wonderful organic matter as well. They found wood, mats, rice husks, which is interesting. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, acorns, fruits and berries and a huge collection of stone tools. Um, which then has allowed uh, historians and archaeologists to look at the trade in the region, as well as what was going on there and what they were eating. Um, the the excavation, the quality of it, and the, the sheer size is extraordinary. I went there and I looked around and I got to go to the kind of behind the scenes, where there was a warehouse the size of a kind of uh, aircraft hangar, I could only describe it as, with... Uh, boxes full of artefacts stacked to the ceiling. I've never seen anything like it in my entire life. And um, remember just how old this is. You know, it's 5,000 BC, maybe. Um, extraordinary. When when I was there, they were they were looking in particular, at the, they were trying to piece together the remains of an ancient um, meal of fish, which someone had, had been eating when um, whatever happened. No one really knows what happened, but there was a, a, a nice little deposit of the bones of, of a little fish meal. So they were looking at it. They know they ate a lot of fish there, lots of water in the area, it was marshland. But there was loads of other things as well that the archaeologists were able to discover. And one of which is that they actually found some tea leaves, which is really, really interesting. And they don't know exactly what was going on, whether they were stewing the leaves in hot water and drinking them like we do. Um, but they're definitely tea leaves, they're definitely from tea, and they're definitely within a context of food. So there is some some evidence here of people in China drinking tea in the Neolithic period, which I absolutely loved. The idea of what we're going to be talking about now coming forward, um, just being just that old. This is this is, you know, the period where they're 
just beginning to domesticate wild rice, which is fascinating. And they work that out because they look at the ratio of um, rice to other plant remains that has um, been discovered in that area. It increases during this period from like 8% to almost a quarter, which proves that rice becomes a much, much bigger part of their diet. They're also using different types of rice um, and, and they, they can prove prove that. So then they know that the rice which is being eaten is, a, is of a particular type, which is uh, which suits itself to agriculture. And that, that whole process of domesticating rice actually takes about 2000 years. And this is very, very early on, right at the absolute beginnings of it. And they, the archaeologists actually found paddy fields around this Neolithic or the, the early origins of paddy fields around this Neolithic village. So um, immensely old, but quite a good place for us to start, I think, James. Yes, very good, Sam. Very, very good. Let me take you from from those uh, those ancient Chinese teas uh, to the 18th century. And I think one of the things that you see in the 18th century is tea becoming really popular among polite circles. And it and what you see is throughout all sorts of records, whether they're letters, diaries, poems, pictures, even material culture, there's an enormous amount of material that suggests tea drinking is coming into polite society, all sorts of paraphernalia. And the tea table in particular and all the sort of equipment upon it is a place where... Um, you know, women of sort of of breeding could could really um, you know socialize with other people, could talk about topics, could show themselves to be you know of of gentle status. And as tea drinking becomes more widespread, and into the second half of the eighteenth century, as it becomes much more readily affordable it becomes something that is associated with respectability, with domesticity. There's an idea, and this is a point that um, Angela McShane makes uh, in a recent article, is that it, um, it, tea is being drunk rather than gin, so it helps with sort of alcoholism and, and sort of fear about it, those kinds of intoxicants. And also if you have a look at what's happening not only in, in Britain but also in in North America, you know, I think it's becoming a really important part of the daily regime uh, for uh, American society, particularly for women. And it's a way in which uh, the North American Daughters of Liberty uh, were able to show their sort of political colours. And what's interesting is that not only does it crop up in the written sources, but also it crops up in the material culture that survives. And if you go to the Victorian Albert Museum, you can see some amazing objects associated with tea. And tea, the actual tea ceremony, the serving tea at a particular time in the day, all the sort of teapot and the teacups and the teaspoons, the, even the uh, tablecloth that you put on the table and all the sort of ornateness and decoration that's associated with that, that, you know, almost the sort of the doilies. Um, this is all about showing status and wealth and a way of displaying who you are and where you are within society. And if you if you go on the... Uh, on the website of the Victorian Albert Museum, uh, look up 
um, a teapot. Just type in teapots. And I've got one here in front of me, which is item 0777946. And it's a, a Thomas Fry teapot. So it's an enamel painted teapot dated from 1745 to 55. And it's got in it. It's got on it a scene of two couples um, outside a tent drinking tea. Um, there's another uh, example of a beautiful uh, design of a an elaborate uh, teaspoon. So an elaborate gold teaspoon that's beautifully wrought, that if you had this on your table, you'd be showing off your wares. And this whole sort of tea ceremony is depicted really well in a painting by Richard Collins of circa 727 that's also in the Victoria and Albert Museum, and it's called A Family of Three at Tea. And at it, you've got um, a daughter, there's a little dog on a, on a stool, and a, obviously a husband and wife in refined 18th century garb. And on the table is the most ornate, sort of what looks like a silver... Um, what looks like a silver sort of set of tea things. There's a sugar dish, a tea canister, sugar tongs, a hot water jug, a spoon boat with teaspoons, a slop bowl, a teapot with a lamp beneath it to keep the contents hot. So all the things that any self-respecting 18th century family would have on their table that would show their wealth. I'm also interested in this in relation to gloves, would you believe, because there's so much material at the time about hands and gloves being used to keep particularly women's hands beautiful and white and and having clean gloves was really important because actually what they were was the sort of backdrop to holding these refined teacups that you would have with you so there's all sorts of all sorts of politics there social politics about about cleanliness and protocols of politeness and hands and of course everything comes back these days to the history of gloves sam so for me tea is all about gloves 
Hmm, I'm not surprised, but <laughs> absolutely fascinating as well. Um, I'm just going to whiz back to China very briefly, um, and then I'll let you go again. Uh, just to, to, I climbed um, an amazing mountain called Mount Tai. It's one of China's five great peaks, about 400 kilometers south of Beijing. Um, it's it's got I think something like 7,000 steps up to the top. Um, if, you, if you've seen Kung Fu Panda, where he climbs up. Oh, yes. The, yeah, it's basically, I think it might be what Mount Tai, what, what, not the other way around. Mount Tai was not based on Kung Fu Panda. That's not, not correct. Kung Fu Panda was probably based <laughs> on Mount Tai. Um, and so what you've got is emperors journeying to the summit. And what they're, they're trying to do is to control the world's natural order, right? They, they believe at the top of the mountain is where heaven and earth meet and that's where there was there was a temple and that's where pilgrims today pray for like their own well-being and also uh, everything for their lives and for their their families um and what what the the emperors did there was something called the feng shan sacrifices and feng means sacrifices made to heaven shan were those made to the foot of the mountain indicating earth so it's a very clear distinction between heaven up the top and earth down the bottom and how this mountain joined the two together and we know that they were doing this as much as two and two and a half thousand years ago they did it to strengthen their position in uh, as as the, so the emperor's like the chosen medium between heaven and earth and he's he's doing it to try and bring his rule um in line is probably one way of putting it with 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 what's going on in the skies and to get blessings upon his reign and his realm it sounds a bit nebulous but it was very very important to them um What's interesting about this is that you've got an emperor desiring order and prosperity. And they're doing it by offering these sacrifices, these prayers at the top of a mountain because it, 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 its location, its position is so important. And it wasn't just emperors who wanted or thought that they would achieve order and prosperity through this kind of belief system. And actually it passed down through the Chinese in a system that we know today as Feng Shui. Um, which exactly the same kind of thing. It basically, it, it, it seeks balance according to, um, to the, the principles primarily of yin meaning the moon, yang meaning the sun, but also the, the sort of the organisation of the five natural elements being fire, wood, earth, metal and water. It's all to do with, um, with uh, structuring the flow of qi. So that is your feng shui stuff. And what's great about this is that I went to a feng shui forest and they're really, really cool. And I didn't know they existed before I ever went to one. And what they are is particular types of man-made woodland. So they haven't just feng shui their house. They've done it to their landscape. And we know that also one of the earliest records of feng shui woodland being planted goes back to about 180. So uh, a seriously long time ago. And that there is some really interesting records about where they are. And many of them still survive. And I went to visit one and I, I chatted to a lovely guy there who has his tea bushes. And finally, we come round to tea and he taught me to pick tea. So that was my tea picking experience in a feng shui forest in southern China. They believe that their role, people who live there now believe their role is to protect the forest um, it's probably 2,000 years old or so since it was originally planted and set aside to be a Feng Shui forest in the foot of this extraordinary mountain. 
um, with these wonderful waterfalls running through it. And they believe that that particular forest makes particularly delicious, sweet, tasty and inevitably very expensive tea. Um, but I just wanted to draw your attention to the fact that, um, yeah, the tea comes from some, some very special tea comes from Feng Shui Woodland, which is ancient um, sort of manufactured woodland um, throughout the landscape of southern China. Very good. Mm-hmm. You should get some, James. Get some Feng Shui Forest tea. I will. I will. I want to talk about social control now hmm. uh, and and the negative impacts of tea. And I want to start with a little anecdote. It was many, many moons ago. I was a research fellow at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., which is a wonderful institution. Uh, however, one of the things that they have uh, every day is they have something called Folger Tea. And at three o'clock, you tro- everyone troops down to the to the tea room and has a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and some biscuits and whatever. And it's an opportunity to chat and to mix and, and everything. And it's keeping alive a a tradition uh, that I think is really good. Now, obviously, the way in which they institute it is, for, is to encourage sociability and discussion of research, which is brilliant. But the library shuts very early. And so actually taking out half an hour at a particular point in the day, three o'clock, just after lunch, really, is a form of social control. Mm. And actually what they... You feel really guilty if you don't go to Folger Tea. Um, and, you know, and, and those people who, who stayed in their seats and kept working were slightly sort of frowned upon. And I think this has parallels with 18th century society, because as soon as you build up all of these traditions that are about showing off your status and your, you know, and your finery and your teapots and going on these social rounds that we're so used to from our all our Jane Austen and, and all the books about polite society in the 18th century. In fact, there is a stifling patriarchal tyranny underlying it because what it does is basically it forces women into a domestic sphere where they have to play and dress up in a particular way in order to play these polite roles of you know mistress of the household you know or guest or you know and and or family member or whatever and actually you know it's something that cuts away at female agency. So I just want to make that sort of very, very sort of quick, quick point there. The other point I want to make, Sam, is that as demand increases for tea, there are various problems associated with it that actually, I think, allow you to look at the negative side of tea. One, as I mentioned earlier, is the way in which rather like drugs today, you know, traders would cut it with various things. Heroin might be cut with talcum powder or horse tranquilizers or, you know, all manner of things. And so so was the same uh, in the 18th century. And genuine tea leaves uh, were cut with things like twigs and, you know, rubbish from hedgerows and, you know, hawthorn and, and ash and all of those kinds of things. And this miscegenated tea was known as smooch. Uh, which they think comes from Afrikaans, Dutch word, uh, for a peddler or a cheat. And uh, in his book, uh, Tea, A History of the Drink That Changed the World, John Griffiths 
writes that so damaging to the honest tea merchant had the practice of smooching become that in 1776 a law was hastily passed threatening a fine of five pounds or imprisonment for anyone caught trying to dye or fabricate any slow leaves, licorice leaves or leaves of tea that had been used. So there's a real sort of, you know, a real sort of trade in dodgy tea going on. And if you look at uh, advertisements for tea houses and coffee houses at the time, there is a real emphasis on the quality of tea and the price of tea. I have one here uh, in front of me, um, which is a which is a an advert for a coffee, a tea, coffee and chocolate at Tea Boots Warehouse number 212 in Piccadilly, the corner of Eagle Street. This is an 18th century one. And, and it, it reads, Where the nobility, gentry and others may be supplied with some fine, fresh teas, coffee and chocolate on the most reasonable terms for ready money only. He further begs leave to inform them, although the undermentioned prices may appear considerably cheaper than the usual charges of like commodities, yet he will warrant every article sold at his warehouse to be of the best sort and nowise damaged nor adulterated in order to reduce the prices green tea was uh, six shillings and no pence speckled leaf tea was seven shillings good bloom was eight shillings and sixpence heisen tea was nine shillings and sixpence very fine tea was 12 shillings. So very, very, very extraordinary sort of menu there that we've got on this sort of this coffee shop in, in Piccadilly. There are also uh, tales from the time about people smuggling tea and, and not only um, uh, adulterating it, but also stealing tea. There's advice against, against smuggling um, and people would steal tea caddies um, and tea caddies would mostly be locked you know, because the contents of them were were very expensive um, if you trawl through the old bailey records online the old bailey online we've talked about in the past it's a brilliant resource they have digitized all the old bailey records it's fully searchable and if you put in a search term tea theft um over three thousand thefts involving tea and teapots and caddies and spoons are come up including the following which was a thief who was executed edward williams of london was indicted for breaking the house of john cousins in the night time and stealing 60 pound of tea valued 60 pounds the 13th of June last. The prosecutor deposed that his house was broken and his tea stolen. A door that went out of the cellar into the shop was broken and the till where his money used to be was broken. But that not answering expectation, there being no money in it, the warehouse door was forced open and his tea stolen and carried out at the shop door, the door being left open, of which he was acquitted by the witch. And that the next morning, hearing of a parcel of tea that had been old upon inquiry, found it to be his, and suspecting the prisoner, he being apprehended, confessed the fact that he got into the cellar in the daytime, concealed himself till late at night, then broke out in the cellar, into the shop, and thence into the warehouse. 
the prisoner having little to say in his defence, the jury found him guilty of the indictment, which meant death. Now, to end, I want to sort of join up the dots and to talk about how the polite side of tea that we've talked about with the sort of the, the polite rituals around the tea table also intersect with these more negative malign aspects of it and this brings us to John Cleland's Fanny Hill which is an 18th century novel and there's a scene in that where Fanny who becomes a, a, a prostitute um, is introduced to a well-paying client by the brothel owner over a, a sort of polite cup of tea. So you've got the sort of merging there. And actually what's happening is the, the sort of polite act of drinking tea is used as a smokescreen to disguise the fact that actually, you know, we're dealing with a, a prostitute meeting a client here. I'll just read this little extract. Mother Brown had in the meantime agreed the terms with this licorice old goat which I afterwards understood were to be fifty guineas peremptory for the liberty of attempting me and a hundred more at the complete gratification of his desires in the triumph over my virginity. And as for me, I was to be left entirely at the discretion of his liking and generosity. This unrighteous contract being thus settled, he was so eager to be put in possession that he insisted on being introduced to drink tea with me that afternoon when we were to be left alone. Nor would he hearken to the procuress's remonstrances that I was not sufficiently prepared and ripened for such an attack, that I was yet too green and untamed having been scarce 24 hours in her house. So there we are, Sam. There's the sort mm. of a journey around the 18th century history of tea. Wonderful. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? All these different ways we can whip off and explore what's going on. Let me just... Uh, I'm going to briefly finish with where I began talking about the kind of the, the imperial history of tea, or maybe the, maybe the global history of tea. And this is relevant because what is happening in the Suez Canal as we speak, James? Do you know about this? I, I was driving back and heard exactly what's what's happening there. Yes, yes, I do. There's something stuck. There's something stuck there. There is. They they need one of those huge, big squeegee things you unblock drains with. Um, <laughs> there, there is a Taiwanese uh, kind of massive super tanker called the Ever Given, and it's stuck halfway down the Suez Canal. Uh, why does this matter? Well, it matters because it's blocking all of the um, hugely important maritime trade that goes through the Suez Canal every day. And there are now massive car parks either end of the Suez Canal waiting. Uh, why does this matter? Why is it related to tea? Well, it's crucial, of course, because the Suez Canal was opened in 1869. And that is the same year that the Cutty Sark was launched. And you all know the Cutty Sark as being one of the great last tea clippers. So she's launched in 1869, built in Scotland, built super, super fast. Uh, it was during a period where they actually raced. Um, there was a kind of a premium or like a bonus, which was paid to the first ship that arrived with the first tea of the year from China. Um, that, that race had actually been abandoned three years before the Suez Canal opened. But it, the point is, it's a time of building very rapid ships to get tea back to the UK as quickly as possible. The problem was the um, Suez Canal. 
Now, you can get sailing ships through the Suez Canal, but you'd need to have a target. It was very expensive, and it's also very difficult sailing through the Red Sea to actually get to the Suez Canal. The winds are all wrong, which made it um, going by sail incredibly difficult. But if you could steam it, if you could go under power, it made the journey so, so much quicker. Makes it about three and a third thousand nautical miles uh, shorter than sailing around at the bottom bottom of Africa, sailing around Good Hope. So it starts off with um, the Cuddy Sark's launch. She does her first journey in 1879. She makes it in 109 days. But the problem is, is that she's up against steamers and they're going through the Suez Canal. So she actually very rapidly gives up, um, just within six years of her, of her life, she gives up the, the China trade and goes on to um, the wool trade with Australia. So for those of you who've got your uh, ear on what's happening in the Suez Canal, think about the very fascinating history of tea and how it's all related to the Cutty Sark. And of course, go and look at the Cutty Sark. It's wonderful. Um, made by, uh, for the Jock Willis shipping company, James, um, White Hat Willis. He, he was, uh, I like to believe he was a relative of mine. Family um, relative? Uh, well, I don't know, but he, uh, he has a, had a wonderful, wonderful um, family phrase, and it was a sort of a corruption of where there's a will is a way. And if you write that, it's where there's a Willis away, which is really cool. <laughs> and he has that he has that written on the on the uh, like uh, emblazoned on the stern of the Cutty Sark. I think you should have that on your tombstone. Oh, that would be nice. Uh, I'm not wishing you dead. I wish, I'm just saying it would be a nice epitaph. Thank you very <laughs> much. Oh, that's it. I hope you enjoyed tea. I love tea. We could, we could, as always, as, as all good, great, uh, unexpected subjects, you can go on for hours. Um, if you'd like to find out more about what we're up to as we spend our lives thinking about the Suez Canal or whatever it might be, uh, do please follow us on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're inspired by my little maritime story, do please check out my maritime history podcast, The Mariner's Mirror Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. You can also follow us on Instagram and you can friend us on Facebook and you can see everything that we've been up to in recent years on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. Signed books galore. Yay! Well, that's it for now, guys. Be with you soon. Bye-bye, bye-bye. Take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.